Hi, I'm Kayla. And I'm Sloan. And I'm really excited about this episode because we're talking about something that is not only important, but as you know, as a podcast that talks about crime and cannabis, I feel like it's our responsibility to help those who are incarcerated for an amount of weed that I might have in my possession right now. <laughs> so it's definitely, uh, I'm very excited. We've been, we've been looking forward to this for a while, and now we finally get to share this with you. And I think, you know, sharing it the same week of 420 is, is great. Um, and I realize I'm burying the lead here and I'm teasing you too much. But we were lucky enough to speak with representatives from Last Prisoner Project, which is, they explain it better, but it is an amazing organization that, that is working to not only free people who have nonviolent drug charges, but also help them to actually start their lives over so that this, you know, this one incident isn't something that has to define the rest of their lives, especially since, you know, in states where it's legal, we get to go to a trendy, cool store and buy our favorite strains and talk to bud tenders. And meanwhile, there are people who are worried about their safety in prison right now. So yeah, and even in places where it's not legal, if you are able to smoke with your friends and sit back and relax and not worry about being targeted by the cops, like this is this is an organization to definitely step up and get involved with. It's easy to get involved with them. They're super awesome, and they have tons of amazing resources on their website, which they're going to go further into when we talk to them in a bit. And I think one of the most amazing things is that they really highlight the presence of the cannabis community. And we know that we are a welcoming and weird and wonderful community. And I think the more we can work together and bolster each other up is a, is a good thing. Yes. Okay. So here we go, guys. Oh, shoot. Why do we always do this? Let's see, do we were, see, we were oh. so excited about the episode that we didn't even say, this is high crime. <laughs> Thankfully, I think our listeners oh, know it is that. High crime. <laughs> high crime talking about decriminalization. Yes. Welcome to High Crime. How did uh, 420 go for you guys? It was great. Um, we were super blessed to have um, a lot of different like virtual events that we were participating in. Um, so it was awesome. You know, we're kind of at this critical moment of dealing with COVID in facilities right now. And yeah. so it was great to kind of have that support from the cannabis community um, at this time when we just need a lot of funding to try to get people out and at least if not get them, you know, all the supplies they need. That's something I've noticed in the cannabis community is I feel like it's a really supportive, inclusive community. Yeah, totally. And you know, that's, I always say my spiel of like, I, you know, I'm an attorney and, but before I came into the cannabis industry, I was working for the federal government, like didn't really know this was going to be my path. But um, once I kind of started getting more involved, just immediately loved the community, loved that so many people were prioritizing justice, social justice, social equity, um, criminal justice, obviously. So yeah, I, I love being a part of that community for sure. Yeah, I mean, I know that we've noticed. Where are you guys based out of? Los Angeles and New York City. Yeah. Oh, cool. We met. Just like me and Steve, I was going to say. <laughs> oh, nice. 
we met in college and then I live in New York, although I'm in LA right now. Long story, got stranded out west and <laughs> and Kayla is based in LA. Cool. Well, everything I've been hearing, I'm in Connecticut and everything I'm hearing from my friends who are in the city or were in the city is it's better to be out of the city right now. So maybe. Yeah. I was really thankful. Um, a weird series of personal events had me go out of state before the Corona thing. And then everything hit New York. And um, I just was like, well, I will be crashing with friends and <laughs> uh, staying on the West coast for now, I guess. Yeah, and, uh, more opportunities to be outside, especially like today. It's really cold and rainy, so I'm sure it's nice to be in LA. <laughs> yeah, uh, I feel like we're already getting. It's already kind of just like, even though things are different, LA weather is like still going to be summer. <laughs> it's very warm. Yeah. But hi, Steve. Thank you so much for joining us. Lovely to be here. Thanks. <laughs> Um, should we go over just quickly for those who don't know what Last Prisoner Project, you know, stands for and what a lot of your work has to do with? Sure. Yeah. Steve, do you want to kind of give the impetus for the project and then maybe I can go over more about what we do in our programs? Happy to do that. Um, uh, the vision for Last Prisoner Project was born in 2017. This was after California had legalized cannabis. The voters of California had legalized cannabis for all purposes in the election of 2016, but before the law took effect in 2018. And like a lot of cannabis company executives, I was on the search for growth capital so that we could be ready for that larger market when it came. And I found myself one afternoon uh, at the top floor of a very big, impressive office building overlooking in Toronto, uh, overlooking the city, a beautiful view, long, long conference table, and some of the most powerful people in the Canadian capital markets were sitting at that table. And we had spent the day reviewing plans and projections, and those plans and projections talked about vast quantities of cannabis, tons and tons and tons and millions and millions and millions of dollars. Towards the end of the day, my phone started buzzing. And uh, normally I wouldn't excuse myself from a meeting like that. But in this case, I knew it was my friend Chuck calling from a correctional institution in Pennsylvania. So I went out. I, I, I got that call. Like all calls from prison, it was a grim call. It's just really hard to talk to your friends when they are in those kinds of situations. In this case, it, it had snowed. There were several feet of snow on the ground in Pennsylvania. Uh, Chuck's mother, close to being in her 80s, didn't have anybody to shovel snow for her. And he was feeling really uh, bad about that. And, uh, and Chuck was uh, doing that time four years for 14 pounds of cannabis, total value of less than $50,000, uh, far less than $50,000, um, wow. total value of you know, probably less than $20,000. And, uh, and so when I walked back into the room, I was just struck by the disparity of Chuck's situation in prison for four years, unable to take care of his family for, you know, a few tens of thousands of dollars worth of weed 
versus uh, the, the atmosphere in the meeting room where we were talking about much, much larger quantities of money in cannabis. Nobody had the slightest fear even of being arrested. And so in that moment, I saw a moral obligation. And for me, I, I wouldn't be able to get up in the morning and be one of the people on the outside profiting, making, building wealth, uh, knowing that my friends, the people who did exactly what I am doing now, were still in prison. Uh, so I felt a moral imperative. I also saw a huge opportunity. I took a look at those spreadsheets on that great big long table. And I said, wow, if we can just peel off a little slice of all of this money, we can bring our sisters and brothers home. This is something we can really do. We can get it done. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's beautiful because I know Sloan and I have talked a bunch of times about, you know, how especially in LA, there's so many stores that you can go in and it's, I mean, I've seen tweets about it. It's like an Apple store and you, you can't help but feel guilty. You know, I can ease, I can so easily buy any of this stuff that, you know, can help me with my anxiety or my migraines or anything like that, or even just, you know, for fun. And then thinking of all the people who are stuck in jail for the same thing I'm doing with no repercussions at all. Or even everyone before, you know, the laws passed who spent half their lives or their whole lives in juvenile facilities, adult facilities for maybe even smaller amounts of marijuana than we purchase as, you know, flour at a dispensary here in L.A. Yeah, there's 40,000 plus people in, in prison now in the United States alone. More than 50 of them are doing life without parole for nonviolent cannabis offenses. I mean, that's just absolutely wild, especially seeing as part of our podcast is about true crime. I mean, we know there are so many cases where violent offenders, you know, people preying on children, like really serious, horrible things, and they're getting less time in prison than a nonviolent drug charge. And it just... I mean, it's just kind of mind-blowing. Would you relate it back to kind of the laws passed on the war on drugs and the targeting of marginalized communities here in the U.S.? Yes, I would, but i probably take that back to a farther date than what you were thinking of. The, the disparity, we all know that there's a very large disparity in cannabis enforcement between white people and people of color. People of color are arrested at higher rates. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they are more severely punished. And this has been the case um, for a long time, long before the modern war on drugs. Um, uh, in fact, the original animating purpose of cannabis laws in the first place was racial control. Because this plant came to North America, came to white people in North America through the hands of black and brown people. And it was black and brown communities where cannabis use was first concentrated. And so the cannabis laws have never been about the plant or the properties of the plant. Mm -hmm. They've always been about the people that were using the plant and the desire of people who hold power to oppress those people. I think that's such an important point because if you even look at, you know, the pharmaceutical companies here in the U.S. who are legally producing uh, opioid pills to very little federal punishment. And then things that are plants that come from 
black and brown communities are the things punished. So it makes, you know, to scale back and look at the bigger picture of what is punishable here? Why is it punishable? And who is being punished? And I think that's something that when we're living our daily lives, we're not, you know, especially if we carry privilege, like myself or Kayla, we're not actively thinking of it. But when you zoom out like that, it's pretty mind boggling that there is this drug problem here in the US that is legally made by businesses, corporations, and then marijuana and seeing that disparity. It's no coincidence. Um, it, it's, it's been designed that way. Um, and it continues to this day. If you take a look back to the Arizona uh, Adult Use Cannabis Initiative, which was one of nine initiatives on the ballot in the last general election, and it was the only one to lose. The reason it lost was because of a half a million dollar last minute donation by a company called Insys. Insys at that time was the largest U.S. manufacturer of fentanyl. Wow. Whoa. I know I kind of already mentioned this, but I was, you know, of course, going through you know, your Instagram and everything like that. And this seemed really fitting to our podcast. It was one of your 420 messages. And it was, there are more arrests for cannabis possession each year than for all violent crimes combined. Yeah. That's a and crazy maybe Sarah stat. could speak to that because I think actually Sarah uh, 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 put that post out and so maybe Sarah, you could talk to some of the larger, uh, the larger perspective. Yeah, well, I think this is another huge misconception about cannabis laws and legalization. And the reason that we posted it on 420 specifically was because we kind of had this theme of 420, where, of course, we want that day to be a celebration of how far this movement has come, how far legalization has come. You know, we have a vast majority of Americans in support of legalization. We have a majority of states that have some form of legalization. And so I think, again, there's this misconception that with the movement and the progress we've made towards legalization comes a redressing of the harms of the war on drugs and prohibition of cannabis. But we found that that really hasn't been the case. You know, that stat was referring to arrest rates for possession. And this was the second year in a row that we have data from. So 2019 and 2018, where cannabis arrests have actually increased. And of course, that does not at all comport with legalization and more and more states coming on board with either medical or adult use legalization. And so that really goes back to, I think, what you originally brought up in terms of sentencing and kind of our justice system and why we do criminalize this plant. And of course, you know, that all does go back to kind of the racial animus that was at the core of the war on drugs and wanting to criminalize cannabis in the first place. And so unfortunately, you know, and this is a big part of what we do and what we push for we want states that are legalizing and one day when the federal government legalizes to ensure that they're also putting in retroactive provisions for our cannabis prisoners for to get them out. Also for anyone that has a cannabis offense on their record to clear, to expunge that offense. Um, but we also need to think about, you know, proactively going forward, you know, we've seen states like New York is a good example 
where they've legalized medically, they've decriminalized. We have really prominent DAs um, like Manhattan, uh, Brooklyn DAs coming out and saying, we no longer want to be arresting. We're not going to prosecute cases for low-level possession, but that doesn't trickle down to law enforcement. And so, again, you're seeing these continual increases in rates of arrest. And I think that really does go back to, you know, the policing of our communities of color. You know, it's obvious from the data that that that's the groups that are really being targeted by the continuation of criminalizing, especially something like a low level possession offense. Yeah. And I think it's particularly crazy right now with, you know, COVID-19 and the quarantine and the fact that dispensaries, at least in LA, are considered essential. And I mean, that's great for people like us who, you know, I definitely can personally say that weed has been helping me get through, you know, this crazy time. But you also have to think, I mean, they're, they're like, they're, they're allowed to stay open because they're so essential. And yet there are people currently in prison scared that they're going to get, you know, COVID-19 because they don't have the right safety measures in place and they're there because of a drug charge and it seems i mean it's heavy to think about it's very heavy let's let's be really clear we have we don't know how many we don't know whether it's dozen or hundreds or thousands of people who have been locked up on cannabis charges who now have been infected with covid who would not have been infected had they not been locked up some of them may already be dead we have 100 prisoners in the federal system who have died already. Um, it is a humanitarian crisis of huge proportions that's going on right now. And, you know, one of the issues, uh, it, it, it seems that, that there's some wide recognition that decarceration is necessary right now. We see some baby steps happening in, in, in that direction. But um, a lot of it is slowed down by this question of, well, who should and should not be released and under what circumstances should they be released? And, you know, our position is very clear. There's 40,000 plus people in prisons in the United States who never should have been arrested in the first place. And that's cannabis prisoners. So one way to decarcerate really quickly is to just let out all the people who never should have been arrested on those charges in the first place. I was wondering if um, both of you could maybe talk a little also about recidivism rates and how maybe low-level offenses, once you're taken into the prison system, how hard it is to either get reemployed at a standard job or receive federal benefits or housing, and maybe you could talk a little bit about the path of somebody who may have been incarcerated for marijuana and why it's so harmful. Yeah, well, I can kind of tie this back to exactly what we were just talking about, because one thing that really strikes me with the COVID situation is how rampantly this is spreading in our jails. And of course, we have a particular focus on our prison system. That's where, you know, the majority of our constituents are housed. But when you think about jail populations, the vast majority of people in jails and short-term facilities have not been convicted of anything, right? They are pre-trial. They're there because they can't afford bail. Um, And so you're now having folks that are potentially 
facing a death sentence that literally have not been charged with a crime or they've not been convicted of a crime. And so, you know, that's just a a really heavy example of kind of what our justice system is like day to day pandemic or not. You know, you take folks that might be arrested on something like a low level possession offense. They might be a nonviolent first time offender who, you know, are doing the same things that you and I are freely doing, freely participating in, um, in a state like California. And now you're putting them in a jail system where you, of course, have terrible conditions. The condition of confinement already are, you know, overcrowded, no or very inadequate access to medical care, traumatizing. You know, we repeatedly hear stories from our constituents that, you know, they come out of incarceration, even if it's shorter term incarceration, with post-traumatic stress disorder. That, you know, is the situation of having to be incarcerated no matter the length of time. And then, of course, we have constituents who are serving life sentences. And so you can imagine the trauma that someone goes through when they need to, when they have to go through confinement in any circumstances. And so, of course, we see in this country, especially because we simply don't set up the resources that folks need when they're coming back to society for success, that recidivism rates are incredibly high. And you kind of mentioned just some of the barriers that we set up. You know, people coming out of incarceration, they need our help. And what they certainly don't need is just further barriers to rebuilding their lives finding employment, finding stable, secure housing. But that's what this society in in America, that's what we do. You know, if you have an offense on your record, it can affect your ability to find housing, to find federal assistance, to be eligible for food stamps. You know, that's just the start of a long list of the way that having an offense on your record can affect your ability to rebuild your life. Um, On top of those other, you know, intangible factors of the trauma that you've just experienced and now trying to get back into society, get back to your family, get back to your life. And so part of what we do at LPP is not just focus on that release aspect of it. Obviously, that's a big piece of what we do, but kind of following our constituents through and making sure that we're working to clear their records, we're making sure we're breaking down those barriers to a successful reentry, but then also setting up reentry programs that are designed to offer that support and those resources that our constituents need when they're coming out of incarceration. Because again, that's not something that, you know, our government or our society is really offering folks. Unfortunately, you know, people that have a record really are stigmatized in our society. And so, you know, they're designed to fail in the system. And that's why we see, you know, 80% recidivism rates in some states. It's really not surprising. And so it really is incumbent on this industry and this community that if we are going to fight for the freedom of our cannabis prisoners, we're not just stopping at release. We're following that through to ensure that they have the full freedom to rebuild their life and fully participate in society. I feel like that's such an important distinction. Like you said, like release is obviously the goal, but if they can't, you know, do anything with their lives after that, it's just going to be end up a, a vicious cycle. It's it's really a rigged game. I think that the, that Sarah's words designed to fail 
Uh, you know, you take someone who has committed, call it a cannabis offense or any low level offense, right? And they're, and they're convicted of that. Whereupon they get out, they can't get employment, they can't get subsidized housing, they can't get any, any food to carry them along. Uh, they're largely ostracized. They can't. There's all sorts of professional licensing you're ineligible for. Uh, it becomes very, very difficult to start your own business or to get employment. And uh, and we're talking about in the cases of of some of our constituents, people who will be getting out of prison after having spent decades there. Our constituent Michael Thompson is in the 27th year of a sentence wow. for three pounds of cannabis for three pounds of cannabis. When Michael gets out, all of the support systems that, that, that most people have in place will, have, will, will be very difficult for him to rebuild. After three decades, he's lost many, many members of his family, mm-hmm. many, many members of his friends. And, uh, and, and so it's, it's, a huge, it's a huge challenge. Um, and you know, my, my feeling is that every single person who's prison on cannabis charges now should have a job in the legal cannabis industry waiting for them if they want that uh, when they come out. I think that's the least that we can do for the people who carried this plant through those dark years of prohibition for us. Yeah. I think that's a really good point as well, because the kind of brothers and sisters in the cannabis community who were incarcerated or originally incarcerated from going back to the 30s and onward or beforehand, they are the ones who pass down the knowledge, the knowledge of the strains, the knowledge of the different effects, how it can help. They're, in a way, they're the healers of the original healers of the community, and they've been punished for that, similar to other things that were revolutionary before they were considered okay. And I wonder, what what are the things that are in place right now to promote dispensaries and other cannabis companies that are that can take in formerly incarcerated marijuana offense constituents. Do you want to speak to that, Sarah? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things to what we were just talking about is that unfortunately, even in a lot of legal states, we're still setting up barriers for people that have offenses on their records to participate in this industry. So that's part of kind of the first step that LPP and other advocacy organizations need to take on before we can get to that second step of engaging companies and promoting pathways to employment for justice-involved individuals in the industry. Um, We need to advocate and do a lot of work in terms of policy around legislative reform to, again, ensure that in those states that have already legalized, we are going back and ensuring that there's regulations in place that, in offense, any record isn't going to bar you from accessing the industry. But then going forward, I think it's imperative on all of us advocating for legalization in new states that a part of that legalization ensures that there aren't those barriers set up for someone that might have a cannabis offense on their record to participate in the industry. Um, and that goes both to equity and ownership, as well as workforce development. I think a lot of times there's a hyper focus around cannabis advocacy on equity and ownership. And there should be, as you just said, you know, the folks that have been impacted by the war on drugs, by the criminalization of cannabis, they are the legacy operators. They are the ones um, that carried this plant through prohibition. 
And so we should be doing all the work we need to do to ensure that there is a space for them in terms of ownership. But we know very well that some of our constituents come out and they don't necessarily want to run a dispensary or be, you know, uh, the top person in a company. They don't want to start their own company. Evelyn LaChapelle, one of our constituents, is a good example. Her background was in events and event coordination and community outreach. And so when she came out, unfortunately, she, she had gotten a job but, and had gone through all that kind of background check process only to have a fellow employee Google her name and bring that to the attention of her employer. And that led to her getting fired from that position. So again, you know, just another one of those barriers that's set up not through any kind of law or regulation, but just from that stigma that folks face coming out. Um, But so in any case, Evelyn, you know, came to us and we wanted to find a position for her. And that was kind of a reckoning that we had to have at LPP is, you know, not everyone that has experienced that trauma of incarceration for cannabis is going to want to participate at every level of the industry. Luckily, you know, event coordination and event planning and community outreach is something that's a very needed and very crucial part of this community and this industry. So now Evelyn luckily was able to find the right fit for her at an ancillary cannabis company. But so I think that's another critical piece of this that I feel sometimes gets lost from the conversation is not just ensuring that we're setting up pathways to ownership, but we're setting up pathways for workforce development and for participation in the industry at all levels for the folks that have been impacted by the war on drugs and experiencing incarceration for cannabis. And I just wanted to say real quickly for uh, for listeners, they're on their website, they have a whole section for other stories like Evelyn's. And I mean, even, you know, checking it out, knowing you know, that things were bad, it's still kind of, it's still shocking to see all the people, especially all the life cases. It's, so that is definitely a resource if you are, I don't know, I don't want to say, hopefully no one listening to us wouldn't believe this, but anyone who just kind of really wants to understand what's, how really bad it is and how, how many people are suffering for things that, you know, we are probably doing that resources there. I'm so glad you made that suggestion. And, you know, we would suggest folks follow the, the, our IG and Twitter feeds too, because one of the things that, that we believe is that if people in the cannabis community uh, really understood the stories of our constituents, that the level of outrage would be so big and it would be so high that we would bring them home pretty quickly. And, but their voices have been silenced and they've been hidden away from us and their stories are really challenging to tell. So um, we've managed to tell some of those stories. We're going to continue uh, giving voice to, to our constituents. Um, and I really, you know, even if you think that you know this issue fairly well, to read one or two of these stories really sort of locks it, locks it in and makes it uh, a lot more real. And you know, I read these stories and for me, it's, I just, I think about how easily this could have been me. Um, if I did not carry the privilege that I carry, quite likely, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. I also would be sitting in a cage somewhere. And I think it's um, the only way that you can, you, that, that anybody who hasn't been touched in the way that our constituents 
uh, uh, have can really understand that is by understanding the story. So anybody who's listening, please do uh, um, check out the voices of our constituents. I was wondering, you mentioned getting involved in terms of policy. Is there anything that our listeners and friends in the cannabis community can do by, is there a specific policy or or issue to target that could get through to local representatives and senators if we call that? Because I know in recent years, there's been a call to action for young people, older people, whoever, to get involved in your community, call and talk to your representatives about immigration reform and things like that. What can we be doing to help move things forward in any way? Well, we have a whole menu <laughs> of ways that people can help us. Um, uh, and that ranges from something as simple as just uh, signing up for our feeds, uh, getting the information from us, and pushing that information out to everybody in your network and just help us create awareness uh, about it and what we're doing. If you can go a step further, we uh, usually have a campaign that is focused on one of our constituents. Right now, we're focusing on the case of Michael Thompson, who is in Michigan, who is 68 years old, in a prison that has COVID cases. Uh, Emergency clemency petition, um, a compassionate release petition, is on Governor Whitmer's desk. The prosecutor in the case has signed on and urged the governor to grant that clemency petition. And so we're encouraging people to, to get in touch with Governor Whitner's office and, and let her know that, uh, that, that releasing Michael is something that's important to them. Uh, Sarah can, can give you some of the information on that. Then there's more, right? If there are any cannabis retailers listening, or I assume there's consumers of cannabis, we have a program which is really potent for us, but, that, but it's pretty easy for other folks to take part in. And that's called Roll It Up for Freedom. And we just asked cannabis consumers to donate the change from their latest cannabis purchase to the last prisoner project. And you'd be surprised when we have dispensaries that sign up for that program, almost always people will contribute to it. And just that little bit of change adds up to a pretty significant chunk of funds that allows us to do things like work on our clemency program or work on our, our retraining program. And, um, and then, you know, we know that the job that we've set out to do is hugely ambitious. Releasing 40,000 people from prison before their sentences are up just in the United States, it's a big job. And we're going to need uh, the skill sets and the dedication and the passion of a whole army of people. And so if there's, if, if there's a skill set that you have, if there's a thing, if a way for you to plug in and share that skill set with us, if you create content or you write software or you market or you're a social media whiz or are you just like going out and talking to people, there's a form on our website. Uh, you can let us know about you and, and what it is that you do well. And, uh, and then we can, we can see if there's some other ways that you could participate. So we really encourage folks to, to plug in. Uh, this is only going to happen if we all decide that it's going to happen. And like you said before, I mean, I feel like as you know, it's a part, you know, it's a cannabis podcast where cannabis consumers, it feels like our responsibility to if we get to benefit from how things are now, we should give back. And if you know, 
it's totally understandable if you don't have a lot of money and you can't donate. But like Steve said, it's you can share an Instagram post, you can tweet out a link that's really important. And you can always again, you can just go to their website and read stories and just get the message out. So if you can't afford it, someone else can. And maybe you help them see that. And when you're buying products, look for that logo with those chains <laughs> on the product. If you see it on a product, that's an indication that that company is a, is a partner of LPP and is supporting us. And we encourage cannabis consumers to support those companies yes. that are working to reunite our, our whole community and bring everybody home. We will be posting that logo. So now we can oh. all keep an eye out for it. Absolutely. Well, I can add... Quickly, I just wanted to say I'm glad Steve mentioned Michael's case and the advocacy work we've been doing around Michael, because I think, you know, you mentioned there's a lot of pushes for people to get involved in advocacy and calling your lawmakers. And I know personally from experience, a lot of times you get involved in something like that and you just don't really, you can't really tell if you're having an impact. Michael's case, as Steve mentioned, we recently had the prosecutor in that case come on to support his clemency petition. And I can promise you, he did not just do that out of the goodness of his heart. That was a direct result of these calls to action we've been putting out to our supporters and galvanizing the cannabis community around Michael's case and getting thousands of people to flood the governor's office and the parole board with calls to grant Michael's clemency petition. So you can really see in these cases the direct impact that your voice and your advocacy can have. And I think, too, we are now in this time with COVID where it's a really dangerous and scary time for our incarcerated constituents, but it also opens up pathways to decarcerate, to get folks out right now. And so we have an opportunity to advocate to our officials, to Department of Correction heads, to governors, to decarcerate, to grant clemency, to grant compassionate release motions right now. And so also on our website, we have a COVID relief page. And right there, we make it very easy for you to click a button, find your governor's number, find your Department of Corrections head number. And we've got a sample script that you can follow to kind of outline what steps states and the federal government should be taking right now to both protect our incarcerated communities as well as releasing our cannabis prisoners. So again, those are kind of those direct actions you can take while you're home quarantining and we've made those steps super easy for anyone to follow. Yeah, can attest that the that section on their website is very easy to understand, easy to put into action. And that was great what you said, Sarah, about like, we're all stuck inside right now. So if you need something to do, why not do something that could literally change someone else's life? Also, we'll feel so good. I'll tell you what, just think about that moment when we all hear that Michael has been released, right? I'm like getting that chills just thinking about it. Yeah. It's going to come. It's going yes. to happen. It will happen. And just think that if you have sent that letter, if you have made that phone call, if you have made a little bit of a donation, then you too are going to be a part of that. And I'll tell you what, it's going to feel really good when it happens. It'll feel best of all for Michael, but mm -hmm. it's going to feel really good for every single one of us that contributes to this. And who couldn't use a little good feeling right now? <laughs> yeah. And also as our listeners and cannabis fans love participating and sharing and we 
fans love to share, as we know. That's yeah, true. you know, it's like you think about um, a circle, right? Uh, uh, it's so interesting. When we smoke a joint together, we stand in a circle. And that joint passes from person to person, or it did before COVID. Hopefully it will again. And when somebody can come up to that circle, to the edge of that circle, it could be somebody that nobody in that circle has ever seen before, right? And what happens? Circle opens up and joints pass to that person. It's what the plant teaches us to do. The plant teaches us these lessons of radical inclusion, that we are all one, that we need to take care of each other, and that if we are generous to each other, then we shall all live in abundance. That's so beautiful. And that's something we were talking about earlier is just how positive this community is. It really is. I mean, I definitely have been in situations where I met someone literally just because someone was passing around a joint. It's such a special gift to include someone. And so, yeah, I mean, why not give back to this community that's given us so much? Well, thank you to so much for speaking with us. I think, like we said, I, I, having this podcast where we talk about both crime and cannabis, it's really important for us that we're educating on these issues as well and how we can help each other. Let me, let me leave you with one little vision here. Um, I am working, since you do true crime, I am working on a TV show. Uh, and I am trying to get in touch with pairs of people. They're very unusual pairs because what I want to do is tell the story of a true cannabis crime. First, from the point of view of the cops who did the investigation and arrest. Then from the point of view of people who were arrested and busted. And then I want to bring those two sets of people together to have a talk about how they feel now about it. I love that. I'm watching that show. (laughs) whenever it comes out. Yeah, I can totally see us talking about that show on our podcast. Our next binge watch. There's any cops out there who, you know, Mm -hmm. law enforcement folks who have had an experience that you'd like to share, and certainly if any of our people do, then drop us a line. We want to tell those stories too. Yes, share your story. Well, I mean, again, thank you so much. And I think, I don't know. I just, I'm so happy that we got to speak to you and that we're getting to use this time to do something actually positive. And I I have a feeling that our listeners will be really on board with all of this. As you said, I mean, we're all part of this community. Especially during a time when a lot of us feel a little incapacitated to do much. Here's something we can get involved with and do from the seat of our couch. And (laughs) As also someone who's a cannabis fan in a lighthearted way, doing something from the couch is my favorite way to do anything. (laughs) So (laughs) thank you for giving us another couch opportunity. You're most welcome. Thank you for having us. Yes. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. Of course. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys. Stay safe. Be well. (laughs) Me too. Bye. I just want to give a big thank you and shout out to Steve D'Angelo and Sarah Gersten for speaking with us today. I think it's been, you know, some of it's very heavy, but it's very illuminating. And as we've all said throughout the episode, there are just so many easy ways that you can get involved. And I know these issues can seem 40,000 people, 40,000 is a really big number, but we can do little simple things to help bring that number down. And I think it's important that since we're benefiting from this community, I think it's important that we also give back. Hell yeah.
<laughs> so you can check out Last Prisoner Project on social media. Like us, they're very straightforward, Last Prisoner Project. You can also check out their website. And as we said, there's a story section. There's a section on getting involved. And they currently have a special section for helping out during COVID-19. So again, we it, they made it so easy. They work so hard so that we can... We don't have to to get involved. I mean, please, if you have a skill set that you want to help them out with, listen to what Steve said and go to their website and submit what you'd like to do. But if you don't have the time or the funds, please still check out their website, their social media, at the very least, sharing an important post so maybe someone who does have funds can do it. And just making yourself, I think, more educated on the issue is really important. Hell yeah. And I also want to re re say that they have a script that you can follow to call your representatives. And I need a script. I Attention is hard for me. Just pull up the script, call your reps, and let's help some people out. All right, yeah. guys? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Later, Later buds! buds. <laughs>